2: Now, the problem is that, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a sort of boom in Templar nonsense. Um, Put it bluntly. (laughs) You know, the Templars must have had some secret. The Templars... Had the Holy Grail. The Templars had the Turin Shroud. The Templars knew the um, secret bloodline of Christ. The Templars existed in ancient Egypt and still exist today. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. And you can get super lost in all of that.
3: That was Dan Jones talking about the Knights Templar.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, where the UK's best selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Hello and welcome to a special extended-length episode of the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to be talking about the Knights Templar, the medieval religious military order formed during the Crusades That have been the stuff of legends ever since. The Templars are the subject of a new book by the popular historian Dan Jones. And he joined us in our London studio recently to discuss their amazing rise and spectacular fall. Putting the questions to him was the historian, author, and broadcaster, Susanna Lipscomb. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this episode is rather longer than our usual ones, but Susanna and Dan's conversation was so fascinating that we felt it would be a shame to have to cut lots of it out. Anyway, here's what they had to say.
4: So, Dan, let's talk about your new book. It's called The Templars, The Rise and Fall of God's Holy Warriors, and it's coming out when?
2: It's coming out on September the 7th. In fact, by the time you listen to this, it might already be out.
4: And it's a it's a nice big book. It's a hefty tome. Interestingly, that the English cover, or British cover, has... Thinking too much about the Tudor period. The British cover has the white uh, background and the red cross on it, which is Good Templar colours.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: But the American edition is black with the red cross on it.
2: Also Good Templar colours.
4: Ah, because the, the piebald flag.
2: Well, p- partly that, but also because um, Templar knights wore white uniforms with the red cross, and Templar sergeants and chaplains wore black uniforms with the red so cross. All brown.
4: it's that some sort of it's? Assertion of superiority from your US publisher?
2: Um, not really, because the actually the, the, the Templar Knight would probably have been... ..was a more prestigious position than a Templar sergeant. Um, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't overthink the white versus black. I think I've just got a sort of a colour palette for the US and a colour palette for the UK. OK.
4: So give a sense of the ground that you cover, because there's a lot of um, material covered here and a lot of time. So just a brief outline to start.
2: So I... I've tried to cover the whole lifespan of the Templars, um, which is in the order of around two centuries. And, you know, from books like The Plantagenets and Hollow Crown, Wars of the Roses, I quite like those big blocks of time. I quite like epic storytelling over um, multiple decades and or centuries. And so the Templars are quite... The story appealed to me on one level because it is that sort of shape. You know, we begin the book in the aftermath of the First Crusade, uh, which was 1096, 1099. So the book opens in 1102, right you know, right after the First Crusade. And it takes the story up to, and and slightly after, in, in, the, in the final two chapters, uh, 1307 to 1312, which was the period that the Templars were um, arrested and eventually disbanded.
4: And it's a rollicking good story. I mean, it's an extraordinary... Um, it's not just the rise and fall, actually. It's rise and fall, rise and fall. And so you kind of are... Um, Carried along, and I mean, it's, it's a. I, I've read it very quickly. It's really gripping. It's you know, it's a great bit of storytelling and a great bit of history. I and mean, what I was really struck by in the introduction is that you quoted one scholar who had said that a narrative history of the Templars would be misleading because it would create uh, an impression of theology that you know. That, and yet, you have written a chronological history, as you say, because <laughs> for those who like their history in sequence. So, you've embarked on a challenge that few <laughs> would take on. And I wondered, what are the difficulties of doing that? And why did you do so anyway?
2: Yeah, I keep doing this. You know, when I was writing Plantagenets, um, I, I went to it going, you know, isn't it so weird that for like decades and decades, no one's just written a sort of survey of the whole Plantagenet dynasty? <laughs> and then you start writing, oh my God, now I see why. It's really <laughs> difficult. Um, and the same was sort of true. You know, I'd read obviously a lot of books about the Templars and, and very few. Probably the most recent one to be strictly narrative was Piers Paul Read, which is now going for, for twenty years ago, um, and really all the the best scholars of uh, of the Templars were shying away from trying to write this kind of narrative history, and and there are, there are some good, you know, reasons for that, and I can see why. It is it's Helen Nicholson, absolutely brilliant scholar of the military orders, who who said that writing a narrative history of the of the Templars is is difficult, going on impossible because. You know, this is an organisation that spans uh, multiple realms and countries, uh, multiple generations. The experiences of Templars living in, you know, Ireland uh, or Croatia or Spain or Hungary or um, or France or, you know, all of these differed wildly. Uh, And then you have the sort of the sharp end, if you like, of crusading in the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem. You know, this is a sort of patchwork of different experiences and in some ways trying to, you know, I can see the argument that says you can't hope to encapsulate all of those experiences in a a simple chronological narrative structure. But, you know, we're human beings and we like to tell stories. And um, I think I found a lot of the books I'd read about the Templars, whilst brilliant, uh, somewhat indigestible thematic uh, to the point almost where many of them just fall apart and certainly not suited to the kind of audience I want to reach which is which is people who are, are interested in history but don't have the sort of depth of knowledge um, to be able to sit down and digest a, a sort of heavy thematic book about a topic like this. And, and I want to write stories. I love writing stories. I'm, and, and, uh, and stories progress generally, unless you're Christopher Nolan, in a, a sort of an accepted fashion of a beginning and a middle and an end. And, and so the, the job for me then becomes marshalling all of this disparate material into shape making it digestible. I'm not saying that, you know, this is not a definitive or the definitive guide to every single person who joined the Templars life experience. No one could write that book. I can only write this book and hope that, you know, if people wanted to explore different aspects of the Templars in more depth, or it's all there in the bibliography, the end notes, you know, and, and in, in a, in a bit in the introduction as well.
4: So we'll come back and talk about story later on um, when we've got a bit more into the material, but let's Start because you mentioned endnotes and the bibliography by talking about sources. What are the sources for this period for this history?
2: You know, I came to this book thinking that, uh, well, in a sense, not really knowing. You know, I knew I know the sources of medieval England quite well, and I know their strengths and their deficiencies. Um, what I didn't have the same depth of knowledge in was the sources for, for the crusading period in general and the Templars in particular. With the Templars, you start with a gap, unfortunately, because the central Templar archive, once held in Jerusalem, moved to Acre, then to Cyprus, disappeared, it's gone. When the Templars were um, were rolled up, the, I mean, the most likely... Uh, thing I think is that it, it was on it was left on Cyprus um, but we, we don't know what happened to the temple, Templar Central Archive so you, you start from a position that doesn't look initially particularly promising because the most important uh, repository of information about the Templars in the East has, is, is hundreds of years gone. However what you do have um, when you're writing about the Crusades is uh, a brilliant literature of Chronicle which comes with its problems: problems of bias, problems of perspective, problems of um, of historical structuring that was that was that was being deployed by the chroniclers themselves. But you have what I what I really liked about this is you have a, a great quote unquote Christian literature and a great quote unquote Muslim literature as well. So the uh, and the Islamic writers in this period um, are brilliant you know, absolutely brilliant. And then the chroniclers who who were writing about, um, you know, Egypt and Syria, and what we now call sort of Palestine and Israel and Lebanon and so on and so forth, uh, are fantastic. And there is this sort of, uh, this, this poetry and um, playfulness to a lot of the chronicle material. Uh, you, we have voluminous accounts kept by um, people, you know, Saladin is, is a A key character in the the sort of mid part of this book that I've written, and you know you have his secretaries and people around him writing first hand accounts. So you know you you can feel very close to the character through that through the 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 literature. There's a lot of good archaeological work that's being done uh, in Israel at the moment. And then when we move to the sort of the the back end of the story, um, when it comes to the trial of the Templars, there's a lot of trial documents there are there are a lot of um uh, there's a lot of evidence from the trials now again you know you you come up against you come up against problems with all evidence as you know all sources but uh, i mean there are particular problems with using the evidence of the trial um, of the templars because most of the literature was written by the people conducting the trials all of whom had a vested interest in finding the templars guilty but, you know, that's our job. It's, our job is to read between the lines, read against the evidence and and come up with a, a, what we feel like is a story we've unpicked from the sort of fake news of the period.
4: And so you're drawing on sources in – I mean, I noticed you've got, you know, as well as obviously English and translations into English, French, German, Latin sources in your bibliography um, – presumably ideally one would be able to read Arabic but there's
2: I can't read Arabic but there are good um there are good translations into English French Latin of the key Arabic sources fortunately
4: and one more question before we get stuck into the chronology because I thought what we could do is we could go along and dip into bits of the chronology where it's just really fascinating and and then also come back to some more thematic questions so one thing you do say also in the introduction is that you're not engaging with the mythology around the Templars um but I do feel like I need to do need to ask you if, as you were approaching this, were there particular things that you needed to slough off, um, particularly heinous or exaggerated or generally annoying myths about the Templars that you wanted to get out of the way?
2: Well, look, Templar mythology is great um, because it. So, what do we mean by Templar mythology? Let's say why people will have heard of the Templars if they've heard of the Templars because of Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code, because of the video games Assassin's Creed, um, because of well, the Nightfall, the big new History Channel um, show, which i worked a little bit on, which is coming out at the end of this year, uh, which is all about the Templars. So the Templars ha- are one of those few medieval organisations that has genuinely left an impression in popular culture today. You know, Ivanhoe, Foucault's Pendulum. Um, now, the problem is that particularly in the last sort of 20 or 30 years, uh, there's been a sort of boom in Templar nonsense. Um, and... <laughs> Put it bluntly. Be, you know, the Templars must have had some secret. The Templars had the Holy Grail. The Templars had the Turin Shroud. The Templars knew the um, secret bloodline of Christ. The Templars existed in ancient Egypt and still exist today. The te- you know, and on, and on and on and on and on it goes. And you can get super lost in all of that.
4: And there's very much this sense that they're the kind of secret society, oh, as you say, society, kind of out in the shadows, ready to come in. Like, they're like superheroes, they're there's like Marvel I- characters. There's this
2: idea of the Illuminati, that that's connected with the Templars, the Rosicrucians. You know, there is nothing too mad about the Templars that you could make up that's not already been made up on the internet. Believe me. Um, and all of that is great. And You know, in, in one sense, it, it means that people have heard of the Templars on the other hand you know i came to this material thinking okay i the last thing i want to end up doing you know 3 years ago when i started writing the book the last thing i want the last place i want to be in 3 years time is in a straitjacket in a padded cell going no 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 you don't <laughs> understand the templars are still ruling the world like i wanted to take all of that away and tell the Authentic story. Now now I I was I was worried to begin with. I was genuinely worried because I thought, I mean, am I is this just not just throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but throwing out the baby, the bathwater, the bath, smashing out the bathroom with a with a sort of sledgehammer, and coming away with some powdered bits of ceramic and plaster in your hands and presenting (laughs) this as something acceptable. As it turned out, thank goodness, the real story is much to my mind, uh, much more exciting, entertaining and relevant. I know that's not a word we like to use too much in in serious historical circles, but, you know, it has some resonance today. So I kind of just set all of the mythology aside until I was finished writing the story. Um, And then I went back and I did two things. The first was I um, consulted to a a multi million-dollar Hollywood production that's all about the Templars and the Holy Grail. Um, And so I sort of have paid my dues with the mythology, which actually we can talk about in a bit because there are interesting levels to it. And uh, secondly, I then went sort of on a crash course of Templar madness and came up with some extraordinary things, you know, like the... Mexican drug gang who call themselves the Templars. But we can, we can get on to all that um, in a little while.
4: Okay, yes, let's do that. So let's get back to the real story and let's start with the establishment of the order. So talk me through the chronology at the very beginning.
2: Okay, like, simple steps. First Crusade, 1096-1099, um, results in the fall of Jerusalem uh, to from its, its Muslim rulers. It's taken by... Western Christians who are described loosely as the Franks or the Latins to differentiate them from the Eastern Christians, uh, the Greek, you know, Greek Orthodox Syrian Christians. Um, the fall of Jerusalem in 1099 uh, is uh, extremely encouraging to Western Christians. It's a sign of God's favour and, and and so on. And it encourages a sort of travel boom, uh, tourism boom of. Western Christians going to Jerusalem to pray, right? You know, it's the centre of the world, literally. You know, you look at medieval maps, there's Jerusalem, bang, in the centre. It's the centre in a, in a geographical sense. It's the centre in a spiritual sense. The spiritual made manifest through ge- geography. There's a problem, you know. You, you know. You're going to go to Jerusalem in the early 12th century. It is a dangerous place, and we have lots of travel diaries, pilgrims kept travel diaries, you know, pilgrims from, from England, pilgrims from Russia, dozens of these, of these diaries of people travelling to the Holy Land in the early years after it's fallen to, to the Western Christians. And they all come up, you know, they all have a great time, but they all say the same thing, it's really dangerous, you know, and you go, you walk along the roads and you see dead Christian pilgrims lying there where they've been murdered by brigands and just left to rot in the sun because it's too dangerous even to bury them apart by wild beasts or just left, you know, left where they lie. So, as well Jerusalem falling, the Christians have set up four quote-unquote Latin states, Kingdom of Jerusalem, County of Tripoli, Principality of Antioch, County of Edessa. In all of these have what we would now call security problems. And so within the first 20 years, there's a feeling which is then put into action that something should be done. And what is done is a guy called Hugh de Pan, Hugh of pain, gets together with a few of his pals, knights who've been on crusade, mostly from the Champagne region of France. They get together in Jerusalem and say, hey, you know what? Why don't we set up a bodyguard, a sort of uh, RAC, um, roadside rescue service for pilgrims? And they do that. They get approval from the king of Jerusalem, Baldwin II. He gives them somewhere to live in the Al-Aqsa Mosque on on the Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount, uh, which is identified by the Christians of the time with the Temple of Solomon as the building which is described in the Old Testament. And from their home in the, in the quote-unquote, Temple of Solomon, they become known as the Templars. So that, that's really where the story begins.
4: Okay, and so you've got this very much this sense of they're there to defend pilgrims. I mean, is it written in that they're there to defend Jerusalem and these kingdoms at first, do you think, or is that a late... Does it expand to that definition?
2: The brief expands quite quickly. So the mission starts um, with defending pilgrims and it quickly becomes defending Jerusalem, defending the roads, or rather it first becomes defending the roads around Jerusalem, you know, manning kind of roadside, castles, way stations. Then it becomes defending the territory, you know, you get mission creep. And so within a couple of decades, the Templars are not just there to to guard pilgrims, they're there to guard, in a sense, Jerusalem, the kingdom of Jerusalem itself.
4: And what's distinctive about the Templars as a movement?
2: Well, in a sense, they're not wholly original because uh, in Jerusalem at the time the Templars were founded, talking about 1119, 11, 1120... 11, there was already um, a group we now call the Hospitallers. You know, there was the Hospital of St John in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the men who staffed this hospital, I mean, literally a hospital for sick pilgrims, the men who staffed the hospital uh, w- were starting to think of themselves as an order, uh, were starting to live by a rule and uh, would eventually like the Templars take on a full-blooded military function. So in that sense, the Templars were not wholly original. However, you know, step back and think about what the Templars were, and and we we get into quite a radical phase of um, the history of of Christian thought, uh, which is less boring than that that introduction makes it sound. Um, The Templars are two things combined. They are by selection, knights, trained killers, um, murdering bastards. They are also men who've decided to take religious vows, vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, and live by a religious rule in obedience to the church. So you're, what you're fusing to, they're not monks, they're often called warrior monks, they're not quite monks, but they are, they're professed religious. So you've got a fusing together of the two big, or two of the big, types of orders of people in in the Middle Ages, the warrior and the religious man or woman. And to put these two together is is in some ways an impossible contradiction, because how can you be going around uh, murdering other human beings, maiming, killing, slaughtering other human beings, and still claim to be following the teachings of Christ, who told his disciples to turn the other cheek and you know and so on and so forth this seems to be quite a contradiction, but through a lot of sort of chicanery and and to my mind actually some sort of just barefaced cheek um, it's it's decided that no no no, we've got a better idea actually, if you sign up to the life religious, then your violence, your murdering your maiming can be to the benefit and the the, um, the satisfaction of God of Christ, and not to the detriment of your eternal soul. Uh, and so that by killing the enemies of the Church, you will not be committing homicide; you will be committing maliceide. You know, the killing of evil.
3: So yes. That's quite a radical
2: idea.
4: Yes, it's a very clever which is distinction to this day. And there's also that, that in the the council which uh, which permits them to be established. Uh, has that, if a cleric takes up arms in the cause of self-defence, that you quote, he shall not bear any guilt, which obviously self-defence here seems like it's possible to be sort of limitlessly expanded uh, as necessary. Um, And then they they establish themselves under a rule. um, So there's this 68-point code of Templar conduct from 1129, um, which has some fun things in it. Can you talk us through any of that?
2: So... Yeah, so 10 years after the Templars had been founded in Jerusalem, uh, they were really going through a process of institutionalising and so becoming a proper organisation with a uniform, with a a, a kind of a code to live by. And uh, in 1129, the Council of Troyes uh, gets together back in Europe and under the influence of um, one of the great kind of reforming, uh, crusade-minded abbots of the day, Bernard of Cleveau, they put together the first templar rule the latin or primitive rule of the templars which is modelled heavily on the cistercian rule bernard of Clevo was a cistercian abbot cistercians were a very new order uh which chucked out all the kind of um the luxuries of benedictine um monasticism and and came up with a very severe austere uh way of monastic life and bernard of Clevo was the sort of forefront of this and he modelled in in his writing of the Templar rule, the Templars on Cistercians. So they were to wear white robes, for example, like the Cistercians. They were to um, pray an awful lot. Uh, They were to live in poverty. They were to live uh, away from the company of women, you know, and so on. So all all those kind of fundamentals of monastic life. And there are also some parts of the Latin rule that are now comical, um, to us uh, but which had some meaning at the time so Templars were forbidden to wear pointy shoes or shoes with laces because it was said that these abominable things belong to pagans now I'm not sure that that's not true um <laughs> the, you know, I see you're, 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 you're
4: wearing lace shoes I'm wearing lace shoes
2: and you're wearing uh, pointy shoes I mean I consider mm-hmm. myself somewhat what closer to a pagan than a Christian I think you, you're rather the other way around but the, both of us would have uh, would have been wearing the wrong footwear to join the Templars um you know, ornate bridles and lances and, and so on were banned for, because these were knights, they were going to be riding horses. Um, anyone who asked for the best robes would be uh, sort of slapped down and immediately given the worst. Now, when you when you first read those, and you can, we can still read the Templar rule today, um, they look comical, they look silly. You know, what on earth is wrong with pointy shoes? But actually, this had, this had a very clear purpose because the Templars were sort of an anti-knighthood, uh, they were in Bernard's mind. They were to the, the the knight, the archetype of the knight, was something faintly abominable. It was this kind of proud, arrogant, uh, worldly um, killer, and he wanted to create a new knighthood, as he put it, that would reject all of the sort of the earthly trappings of knighthood and, and purify the idea. So that these would be knights who didn't flounce about on nice horses with fine, gaudy shoes and and shiny armour and all that. They would, they would get rid of all of that sort of flim-flam and go back to the purpose of what a knight really was, which was someone who, who did violence, and that violence would be turned to God's end. It came out of a monastic reform movement. It was an attempt to reform knight the... The office of knighthood at the same time.
4: Right. Yes. So, sort of taking off anything that might be proud or vainglorious. And and you mentioned the chastity one. The the line you quote from the rule is that uh, that the knights should avoid at all costs the embraces of women by which men have perished many times. Although it does quickly go on uh, to rule out homosexual behaviour as an alternative, um, which we'll come back to. Um, So what was the appeal of being a Templar then? Given it's so austere um, as a code of knighthood, um, why would someone go for it?
2: Why go for for the Templars? Well, you know, I think that in this early period of the Crusade movement, um, which as as a movement in general embraced lots of the ideas we've been discussing, is it possible to do violence that's pleasing to God rather than displeasing? Um, There was a sort of mass crisis of conscience in a way uh, in a, in quite a violent society, that it was it was be, you know that people were becoming increasingly estranged from the possibility of salvation, and that if someone says you know you know knight you you know if you spent your whole life pursuing a vocation which at the back of your mind you're aware is probably going to land you. With, Eventually, with all the torments of hell, you know, with beetles gnawing your innards and being strung up by your eyebrows or your toes and roasted over the, the sulphurous fires and so on, whatever. Um, if someone offers you the opportunity to sort of keep doing what you're doing, more or less, but reverse the sins of of your life, then in in a in a world in which the the Christian worldview is all about salvation, uh, that that becomes quite appealing, I think. The Templars were—they were kind of pretty cool. I mean, that's not my opinion now. That's probably that's my that's my speculation of the time. That here you have a kind of new army-ish, you know, paramilitary with kind of hip uniforms and uh, a devout code of conduct. And um, it's—you know—I'm sure there is a a crass parallel to be drawn with young men uh, going off today to, to. Join ISIS, IS, or, or the Peshmerga or whatever in the Middle East. And the sense that I'm going off to live in, in the Islamic State, I mean, I, I would consider that absolutely dreadful. Um, however, that clearly appeals to, to certain, particularly um, millennially minded, religiously uh, devout young men.
4: Yes, and it's interesting, isn't it? Given that the Templar flag, or you know, black and white, it is about seeing the world in those terms. It's it's a it's a condition of youth in some ways that you yes. that you want to join up to something that is so rigid and says what is right and what is
2: wrong. Yes, I think when you're young, you know, you you do believe that the world is sort of divided into good and bad, and you have this sort of Nietzschean view of things. And then as you get older, it's usually about realising that's completely untrue. <laughs> Maybe I just watch Game of Thrones too much. <laughs>
4: So there's a, there's a spectacular growth of the movement from these kind of small beginnings. And reading about it, it does seem kind of stunning, almost that there's something supernatural about the velocity of their growth. So those first few years, how do they grow so quickly?
2: Well, the key to the Templars, their, their growth um, and their, their longevity, such as it was, was always donation. And a relatively small... A proportion of Templar membership were actually fighting knights. Um, and so what you, what you had was an organisation with a sort of sharp end, by and large, in the Holy Land and in what we now think of as Spain and Portugal, who were fighting, garrisoning castles, um, fighting in armies, whatever. But the, mo- the, the organisation itself was much, 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 much larger, and it consisted in... You know the uh, the non-Crusading arenas and, and realms of England and France, and to, to a little bit the Holy Roman Empire and Greater Italy, and so on, of properties that had been assembled ultimately by donation. So ordinary people would donate to the Templars. Now they could donate anything, ranging from, um, you know, you, you might die and leave your jacket or your horse. Or if you didn't have a horse, you know, a share in a vineyard, or uh, whatever possessions you had, you would you might leave to the Templars, in order to further their mission. That would be the low end of the scale. Um, at the top end of the scale, you could, I mean, you could before your death, you could go and join the Templars, and, and whether you were fit to fight or or not, there was there would be a role for you within the Templars. Um, which was I'll, I'll come back to at the top end of the donating stuff scale. You have people like um, Alfonso uh, the First of Aragon, who left the Templars one third of his kingdom on his death because, well, for various reasons, but but because he believed in the Templars' mission and wanted to bring the Templars into the the Reconquista, the Crusading movement in Aragon. Uh, so there was this this sort of swell of donations, both large and small, which the Templars. Um, Put together in a network of properties and estates stretching right across Europe you know ultimately from end up from Dublin you know from Ireland through to, to Cyprus all of which were focused on making money and that money was then funneled or the profit a third part of the profits were funneled to the crusading theatres where they funded the mission.
4: So money's part of it and it is it's surprising, deep. yeah, a huge part of it. And they're committed to poverty is one of their vows that they become so rich. Mm. But there's also, isn't there, um, independence um, from local bishops and influence. Right. right,
2: so that's, yeah, that's another part of it. So um, early on in the, in the Templars' history, uh, there were a series of grants from the Pope, you know, papal bulls, which allowed the Templars the most extraordinary... Uh, range of freedoms from oversight and from taxation. So, in theory, the Templars, as an organisation, uh, and the officers of the organisation, were only um, uh, only supposed to obey the authority of the Pope. You know, they weren't in hoc to local kings. They weren't uh, obliged to pay tithes. You know, the the regular taxes that bishops and archbishops would levy as a matter of course on the people who lived around them uh so really there were a few pillars of rapid growth widespread popularity the appeal of the mission so that even if people weren't joining the templars they were donating to the templars uh freedom from taxation and regulatory oversight uh those are the, the sort of two pillars by which the organization becomes rapidly quite rich
4: and it's amazing how quickly that happens and how you know they're famous within 20 years and trusted, I was really struck at the time of the Second Crusade, and you can tell us a bit about this, um, Louis Seventh of France yeah. is signing over command of his troops to the Templars. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, that so sounds this,
2: extraordinary. This is kind of the moment when the Templars come to the fore in terms of the, the, the history of the crusading movement. I think, so the Second Crusade, rough, rough dates, 1147, 1148, up to eleven forty nine, the Second Crusade marks the you know a re-emergence of the of the crusading movement. Huge armies sent from uh, from Germany and from France um, to the Holy Land to try and take back Edessa, which had fallen to um, to Muslim armies. And up until this point. The Templars are a sort of interesting and and relatively popular um, adjunct to uh, the Christian Kingdom of Jerusalem, and they're involved in the crusading movement in Spain and Portugal. But their sort of the coming out moment, if you like, uh, takes place during the Second Crusade. Now, the Second Crusade for the most part, decided to march overland to Greater Syria to Edessa to liberate Syria, which was a slightly questionable decision, but they were, you know, in terms of of tactics and strategy, having to march miles through hostile territory. But burned in the minds of these crusaders was the success of the First Crusade, and they were trying to follow exactly what their forefathers had done. Now, as it turned out, that was not a very good idea. Um, And the French components of the crusade, led by Louis VII, got to Constantinople and then had to march through hundreds of miles through Asia Minor uh, in order to get through the mountains down into Syria and, and, and to Odessa. And that proved quite difficult. And it proved quite difficult for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was uh, a sort of a large crusade consisting of tens of thousands of people was quite difficult to, uh, to marshal anywhere, let alone hundreds of miles through hostile terrain, um, because these were not regular soldiers, in, in many cases not soldiers at all, they were led by Louis VII, who, um, well, Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, got shot of him, um, said was more like a monk than a king. You know, he, he, was, he was not, by popular renown, a very, a very good soldier. So halfway through their march through Asia Minor, they, they were in very serious trouble, attacked by Turkish outriders, harassed. The army was, was breaking up, effectively. Riding with Louis VII were roughly 50 Templar knights who'd come from Paris and were, were you know, part of this, a very small part of this, cru- this crusade, this component of the Second Crusade. Things got so desperate um, as, as they were marching through modern Turkey that Louis VII kind of panicked. He was almost captured and, and killed himself and he handed over control of his entire army to these fifty Templars, led by a Templar called Gilbert, or Gilbert, I suppose, um, who organised the army. Thus, he said each he divided into fifty small units, uh, each one of which was to be headed by a Templar, and they were given sort of two two days rudimentary training of what to do if the column comes, comes under attack, which. Not rocket science, it's just don't run blindly around screaming with your hands in the air, you know, to, to paraphrase. Uh, discipline, order, um, don't panic, You know, basic military training. Under attack, the Templars would command these units. Uh, if things got really bad, they'd form up um, into, you know, into a single Templar unit and deal with the problem and then they would slip back. So, and this was very successful, they managed to escort the Crusade, to safety, effectively, um, to the point where they could take ship uh, across to Syria. And, having got to the Holy Land, then managed to raise an enormous loan because Louis VII had basically gone broke on his way over there. So this was, you know, and we're talking about 1147, 1148 at this point, so 30, just shy of 30 years after the establishment of the Templars, which is quite an extraordinary achievement to have gone from a handful of guys hanging around the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, saying, "Hey, you know what? We should guard pilgrims on the roads around Jerusalem to the capability to march a whole, an entire crusading army through hostile terrain safely, and then bail out their leader without going completely bankrupt." Um, was quite remarkable.
4: And is this the zenith? Do you think this is, or at least in terms of in military terms, over these years? For
2: me, it's it's one of the most extraordinary episodes, and it's the the first big uh, demonstration of of what the Templars were able to do. And I think that from that point on, almost every crusade involved Templar um, forces, usually either riding rearguard or vanguard. Um, they fought in most of the major engage, engagements in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, in, in you know in the two two Crusades which targeted Damietta in the Nile Delta, uh, but for me, yeah, this, this moment in the Second Crusade was really an absolutely extraordinary demonstration of capability and of of the trust that, as you use your word, that uh, that people were willing to place in the Templars even at this early point.
4: And what's interesting is because, of course, we're, you're doing this story of the Templars along the way, but w- we learn so much about the Middle East as as we go through. So all these, and one thing I felt I was struck by was that, uh, you know, even as they march through, um, it, you know, who they're fighting against, you're reconceptualizing our ideas about the Middle East, um, reminding us, of course, that national boundaries are not sort of primeval entities, their historic constructions. And so you've got all these kingdoms prevailing at the time of the Templars. Do you want to tell me a little bit about those? I I hesitate to pronounce all their names. The Fatimites, is and Caliph?
2: So, yeah, it is very complicated. um, And changes throughout the the run of the book. But, you you know, you start off... One of the reasons the First Crusade had been so successful was that in the Near East... um, the Islamic world was fractured. So you had a Fatimid, um, a Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt and then you had a, a sort of series of Seljuk kind of um, emirates and, and city-states, all with very fluid kind of borders, in Syria, you know, greater Syria, you know, the Jazeera, Mesopotamia. Um, and then you had another, you had a sort of Turkish what was known as the Seljuks of Rum in um, Asia Minor. So you have all of this sort of patchwork of, um, of divided powers at, at the time of the First Crusade and really in the first half um, of the 12th century in the Near East. What changes and what really... Um, affects the the future and the the viability of the Crusader states is that from the 1160s, 1170s, the Muslim world in the Near East starts to consolidate once again under a series of rulers, Nur ad-Din, Saladin, um, Saladin's uh, successors, and then... In another revolution, somewhat later in the thirteenth century, the Mamluk Sultanate, uh, and, and both of those movements—you know, the Ayyubids, who, who are Saladin's family uh, dynasty, and then the, the Mamluks, a sort of slave soldier dynasty, um, originally who come out of Cairo originally—both uh, of these managed to unite Egypt and Syria. And the geography of this is, is that the Crusader states, they lose the county of Edessa quite early on, but you end up with three major Crusader states, Kingdom of Jerusalem, County of Tripoli, Principality of Antioch. These eventually become encircled and whittled away and whittled away and whittled away. And it becomes the case that the only way to defend these areas or to take back land that's been, uh, that's been reconquered by the, the forces of Islam is to call for another major crusade. And as it turns out, there's only so long you can keep doing that.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
4: So we have this period in the the later 12th century when Saladin um, has uh, risen to power, where the the actually the Western Christians in the Holy Lands are under attack. Mm-hmm. So we have a series of, I mean, disastrous uh, battles, and and these are depicted um, with heart wrenching. Stories uh, like Jacobs Ford or um, the Springs of Crescent, where you've got hundred and forty Templars going against seven thousand of Saladin's men. I mean, it seems absolute madness. Um, and then Hatton, the Horns of Hatton, is it? So there's again forty thousand or so, I think, um, of the Western Christians, the Franks, against Saladin's Saracen army. In fact, actually, there was this description. You had this um, description about the um, how he cut off the water supply, um, which I just thought was absolutely horrific and maybe you can give us a bit of a flavour of that. Yeah,
2: so 1187, um, the Battle of Hattin, the Battle of the Horns of Hattin, uh, is is a pivotal moment in the history of the Christian, the Western Christian Crusader states in the Near East because in the decade or so prior to this point, Saladin a great Kurdish kind of general who'd risen to power in Egypt and managed to unite uh, much of Syria and Egypt, had taken it upon himself to start directly attacking with the aim of uh, ridding the land of the Western Christians, the Franks. And this culminated, well, this coincided with a period of extreme weakness of rule among the Western Franks, kings of Jerusalem, uh, the there was a king of Jerusalem, Baldwin IV, who, who had leprosy. Then there was a child king. Then there was a queen who married a, you know, a, a consort that divided the uh, Crusader states politically. In 1187, Saladin took advantage of all of that and brought the Crusaders under King Guy of Jerusalem's leadership to battle at the Honzatine on the 4th of July. And... Um, Traditional strategy had dictated that the best thing to do was not to get into big battles. I mean, that's the best thing to do in the 12th century in general. If you ever find yourself transported back to the 12th century and someone says, hey, you want to come and join a battle, run away. Don't get involved. The, the answer is no. The answer is always no. Just say no. Um, but for reasons I just sort of describe at length in the book, mostly pertaining to pride, um, King Guy allows himself to be drawn into battle with Saladin, which is exactly what Saladin wants. And the descriptions of the Battle of Hatina, are, as you say, I mean, they're horrible, they're horrifying, they're terrifying. The Christians allowed themselves to be marched, drawn forward and forward away from their supply of water and eventually surrounded and cut off from any supply of water. Now, I don't know if you've heard, but it's kind of hot in uh, in the summer out out in kind of, uh, you know, out in that part of the world. And the Crusader army, tens of thousands strong, very quickly becomes sort of depleted and weakened by lack of water. Around them, Saladin's men set fire to all the kind of the, the, the brush, the, the vegetation that's growing in this very dry climate. So they're not only thirsty, they're choked by smoke. And they're kept overnight from the 3rd of July to the 4th of July uh, with their enemies close enough that they can uh, taunt them, they can shout taunts at them. On the morning of the 4th of July, the army gets up and staggers a little forward. Then Saladin's men attack and, uh, over the course of a, a fiercely fought battle, more or less annihilates the Christian army. The consequences now, the Templars are involved in this battle, and the Templars are heavily involved because the Templar master, Gerard of Rufour, uh, gives the sort of the, um, the wrong advice to King Guy, which is go fight. Uh, Gerard is captured, King Guy is captured, various other, I mean, most of the other senior nobles among the Western Christians are either captured or killed. A lot of the Templars are killed. Uh, those who are not killed and who are captured are brought before Saladin some days later. And Saladin decided after the Battle of Hattin that he was going to deal with the Templars and the Hospitallers. He said, you know, these, because of the normal thing to do with Captives is one of two things. If they're of low status, you sell them on the slave markets. If they're of high status, you ransom them back for cash. Um,
4: either way, you make money, it. Either way,
2: you make money. And that would have been the thing to do with the Templars because these are high-value assets, if you like. These were, these were, extreme, these were elite military personnel with, with you know, with... Great value to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but Saladin says, actually, he says these two orders, the hospitals and the Templars, whose practices are unclean and who are basically never going to give up, they're not going to. We can't persuade them to convert to Islam. Uh, if we let them go, they're just going to come back at us. Uh, he decides to deal with them by killing them, and so he lines up around. He, he pays 50 dinars to anyone who brings him a Templar or hospital alive, lines them up, and has them beheaded one by one, but not by a professional headsman, by the kind of Sufis and, you know, clerics and anyone who's to hand who wants to go. It's like roll up, roll up, grab a sword. take have a, temp- a hack. Have a hack. Take a Templar's head off. And we have these descriptions wow. by one of Templars, uh, one of Saladin's, um uh, you know, associates who says... You know, in some cases, they managed to do it. In other cases, they sort of freaked out and were totally ridiculous and had to be sort of, uh, you know, the job had to be given to someone who was better. So a real butchery of the military orders, which in Saladin's mind was going to fatally weaken the military capability of the Crusader states. Now, the one thing, Saladin understood military strategy extremely well, manifestly. But the one thing he didn't seem to understand was the nature of the military orders, um, which had been understood by another one of their enemies, the assassins, uh, who actually didn't bother really to attack the Templars. And one of the uh, the key strengths of the Templars, which Saladin failed to grasp, I think, was that the membership individually was completely disposable because the strength of the Templars existed in what we now call their brand, and it, it was a corporate strength. You know, No matter how many Templars you killed they were strong enough throughout the 12th and 13th centuries to resupply, to, to re-up, to, to bring new recruits, new resources and just sort of spring back yes, to Yes, they
4: regenerate. They, they do often have this kind of sense of there being this many yeah. headed hydro. You know, they'll just they'll just keep on coming back. They'll just
2: keep on coming back. And that's why, you know, slightly earlier in the 1160s, um, the assassins, you know, this sort of uh, sheer, sheer sect of... Um, literally assassins we could call them some sort of terrorists now but they, they they specialized in spectacular public execution of um famous political leaders and the, on the muslim and christian side they didn't bother with the templars because they realized straight away you know you kill a templar there's another one that's going to take his place it's like whack-a-mole you know
4: it was a <laughs> Were, in fact, the the assassins um, are one of a couple of groups who look a little bit like Islamic equivalents of the Templars at the time, uh, um, in that they're um, warrior uh, castes essentially, and they have a calling to do that. And and later you have um, well the Mamluks basically, yes, the, is it the barrier, the the are yeah. sort of sect of the Mamluks.
2: That's right. You know, if we go, if we move forward into the thirteenth century, uh, with the next great sort of unification of the political territories okay. in in Egypt and Syria, it's it's done under the Mamluks, um, the Bakriya Mamluks, Mamluks who came, the River Mamluks, um, who would come out of Cairo. This is uh, if you watch Game of Thrones, just the Unsullied, basically. You know, there's a it's a slave, there's are slave warriors, who are usually kidnapped as children. Um, from the steppe, brought down to Cairo, trained as, as sort of elite hardened warriors. There are significant similarities between the Templars and the Mamluks in that they are both a kind of warrior elite. They are highly trained, they have they both have military manuals set up to, to lay out their military protocols, uh, they have this sort of fearsome reputation which goes before them. I think the one difference between the Templars and the Mamluks. And by the way, this also applies within the Christian world, and I think is one reason why the Templars fall, uh, whereas other military uh, orders don't, is that the eventually the Hospitallers and the Teutonic Knights found territory of their own. Now, the Mamluks ruled territory. They were the rulers of Egypt. The, or the, this particular group of Mamluks became the rulers of Egypt in Syria, and Syria, a big empire stretching out f- therefrom. The Hospitallers in the 14th century, became the rulers of the islands of Rhodes and and subsequently Malta. The Teutonic Knights, uh, a German or Germanic uh, military order set up in 1191 or thereabouts in Acre, eventually became rulers of Prussia. They, They had territories. The one thing the Templars never had, or only very, very, very briefly had, was territory that they ruled as a military state. There was a moment in the 1190s when Richard the Lionheart arrived in the east on the Third Crusade to basically stop Saladin. On his way to the Third Crusade, he he came via Sicily and via Cyprus, and he conquered Cyprus from its Greek rulers. And having conquered Cyprus, realised he really didn't want Cyprus, uh, so flogged it to the Templars. Um, The Templars, for not much more than a year, occupied Cyprus as its rulers but quickly fell into disputes and really didn't want to have to deal with the hassle of ruling Cyprus, and so sold it on, sold it on to the Lusignan family, um, the family of King Guy, who had led the Christian armies at the Battle of Hattin three years previously. Now, Cyprus became a Christian kingdom, and eventually, you know, after the, the Crusader states on the mainland fell, it became the heart of the, the, the Christian, Western Christian kingdom in the east, Um, but the Templars had got shot of it almost as soon as they'd had it. Now, I think had they not done that, had they found a way to occupy and rule Cyprus, they would have had a political and a geographical base from which they could have operated, which would have made them far less vulnerable to attack when it came at the start of the 14th century, but they didn't, you know
4: okay so we've got you've introduced Richard the Lionheart, and actually one of the ways that you introduce him in the book, you basically introduce him as a torturer, which I think was was kind of interesting to lead into this well known character with this story of um the the awful things he does, but he's uh, arriving on the third Crusade because Saladin has managed to recapture Jerusalem after something like a hundred years and so then we enter this period um where it's all um, well there's quite a lot of toing and throwing. There's you know, there's there are a lot of battles in this book. Toing I mean, and
2: throwing is is the, the lifeblood of the crusades. It so. is the
4: lifeblood of the crusades. And but the background to this also is that the Templars are absolutely enriching themselves. You go and you you do a bit of a survey of this period of at the, the very end of the twelfth century, beginning of the thirteenth century, and the sort of amazing amounts of wealth that they're acquiring. And also we've still got the parallel story of the crusades. Um I don't know what, what you want to pick up on there there's so much material um mm. because this is also a history of the crusades actually isn't it?
2: Yeah it is. I mean I think this is a one of the things I wanted to do with the book or I realized that I would end up doing with the book uh to to for, form it into the narrative shape I wanted was that you could, this is a, as well as the history of the templars it's a history of the crusades through the templar eyes. Mm. And that's what gives you this sort of narrative flow. Now, the 13th century is um, is a period where the, the crusading movement starts to fragment. So in the 12th century, well, the late 11th century is the First Crusade. Mid-12th century, Second Crusade. Late 12th century, 1190s, Third Crusade, led by Richard the Lionheart, Philip Augustus of France, and so on. Now, we've, we've just described the slaughter of the Templars by Saladin uh, uh, Richard the Lionheart arrives in the Third Crusade to win back territory from Saladin and does so with some success, but they never take back uh, the city of Jerusalem. But it's a, it's a kind of revival and a re-energising and a, a reclamation of, uh, the, of the land of the Crusader states. And it, it, Richard has the same effect on the Templars. He brings with him new leadership for the Templars, uh, drawn from his own circle of followers in, in France, uh, where obviously he ruled quite a lot of territory, Um and the Templars, from this point, start to rebuild. And then the Crusade, I think, you know, to cut a long story short, the Crusading movement from the Third Crusade, we sort of skipped the disaster of the Fourth Crusade, which sacked Constantinople, but the Fifth Crusade down to the Nile Delta, which attacked Damietta, uh, 1218, 1219, 1220. Uh, the, the Templars are then fully involved once again, and they are they are part of, they're a regular part of the armies of the Crusades, and they are sort of elite soldiers within those armies and their their masters have very high status and are are often called upon to advise by the usually the western kings or or high status nobles who are leading the crusades so if we get through you know if we move to the say the middle of the 13th century uh, when louis the ninth saint louis of france is leading crusades again you know leads a crusade to to, again to damietta in the nile delta uh, he's using templars to Plan to acquire boats to to give him advice while he's on campaign. When Louis is captured in Damietta and is uh, held for ransom, he turns to the Templars, he can't pay the ransom, Is you know about 30,000 uh, pounds of silver short of paying the ransom, turns to the Templars. They're able to pay his ransom off the cash they've got sitting in boats in the water just outside Damietta. So, um, uh, you know, add on to all of that, their involvement in the crusading movement comes much more than an auxiliary or an elite sort of military component. They start to be heavily involved in the funding and the financing of crusades. So we have letters from Pope Honorius III at the time of the Fifth Crusade, you know, first half of the 13th century, which tell us that Templars were being used to collect crusading taxes, and not just to collect taxes, you know, in England, France, Hungary, Spain, whatever, but to move that money down to Egypt Without it having to go through Rome, so that people won't complain that the Pope's siphoning it off. He says that the Templars and the Hospitallers, he says, are oh, the organisations he trusts best to perform this task. And, they, and, and uh, indeed, they not only were they trustworthy; they had a capability, thanks to their sort of organisation, the, the spread of their organisation, the structure of their organisation, to move large sums of money around, which is one of the reasons why the Templars have uh, acquired a reputation as quote unquote bankers. Um, and now, that's a, a word I use as the, the sort of section title of the third part of my book. Um, it's a word that I thought sort of long and hard about because I think that the Templars were more than just bankers. You know, the, the, the image that we're often presented with of the Templars is that uh, they were the world's first bank. And that meant that, you know, you put your money down in London and they were like an ATM. You took it out in Rome or Jerusalem if you presented a, a sort of a coded chit of paper of, of parchment or whatever. Um, Not quite so. Uh, That was not what the Templars specialised in, really. Yes, you could deposit things with the Templars. King John of England deposited the crown jewels with the Templars at one point because the Tower of London was out of his hands and not not a safe place to to keep his stuff. You could deposit charters, valuable stuff you could deposit with the Templars, partly because their their buildings were religious buildings and, and it would be sacrilegious to attack them. And partly
4: partly because, because they're paramilitary. They're paramilitary
2: <laughs> and you'd be mad to attack them. Um, but they were more into what I'd call financial services or what today we'd call financial services. So tax collection, you know, that's a really complex business. I mean, paying your taxes is hard enough. We, I mean, I complain bitterly about it, although I do it. Um, collecting taxes, I mean, an, a total nightmare. But the Templars are trusted to, to undertake the business of actually going around getting hard currency as taxation, accruing it, moving it. In France, for about a hundred years, in Paris, the temple, the, the the temple now gone in Paris, uh subcontracted effectively all the treasury or a large swathe of treasury functions from the French Crown. That sounds kind of dry, but when you think about it, it's like um a private company taking over HMRC. The complexity of that that business uh is is sort of mind-boggling. We have the, you know, we have the Templars running accounts for uh, the king's mother-in-law in France. We have, you know, we have the Templars um, looking after, you know, when Henry the moving back somewhat back into the 12th century when Henry II uh, inadvertently had Thomas Becket killed in 1170. His penance was to give a. a a large amount of money for the um, the funding of a crusade that was deposited with the Templars because they were the people who was thought would be able to a keep it and b would know what to do with it. So it's a it's a, it's a dizzying array of financial services that the Templars were able to provide, and I think that's a better description than simply thinking of them as a bank of deposit or withdrawal.
4: But bankers is a shorter bankers phrase is, than is a nice short services. term, and we
2: know what we sort of mean. I mean, you think what do you call Morgan Stanley? Bankers, right? And and in the same range of activity was in the medieval world. What and about.
4: large scale estate management and raising of loans and, and transferring. I mean, it's, it's vast, this mm-hmm. scale of operations. And which one of the things which makes you think of the point that at Damietta, one of the people you have appearing in your vast cast of characters is francis of assisi yes whose whose who's real name i didn't know giovanni de petro de berdani something like that i didn't know that before anyway so that's interesting he appears and he uh, is such a contrast to the templars who've been set up as this kind of radical aesthetic form of knighthood that it makes it them look like they've really diverged from their rule that actually you know that there ha- and there have been accusations along the way at certain battles that they have been precisely what they shouldn't have been they've been vainglorious, they 've been greedy, and that's why they've lost various battles
2: yeah, I mean I loved that moment with Francis of Assisi turning up at, at the fifth crusade in Fran- you know, so Francis of assisi you know at the beginning of the thirteenth century just just as the temples had come out of a period of monastic reform and a feel that uh, or in part, and the sense that uh things should be you know got. We should get back to our, our roots, humility, poverty, chastity, piety. That comes round again. It comes round again in the 13th century and you have the rise of the mendicant orders, the Franciscans, the Dominicans and so on. And there's this wonderful moment, I mean, wonderful for me, because when I, when I start a chapter of this, I think, when I'm always looking in telling stories like this for illustrative moments, and I think there is a great illustrative moment when Francis of Assisi appears at the Fifth Crusade, it comes to Damietta... And everyone's like, oh, my God, who are you? He says, look, I've come, you know, I'm going to go and talk to the sultan, who at this point is al-Kamil, one of uh, Saladin's nephew. Don't worry, I'm going to sort all of this out. And they say, you, you, know, you know he's going to chop your head off. I mean, I really, really advise you not to go and talk to the sultan. He says, no, 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 I'm going to go and talk to the sultan. So off he, off he pops to talk to the sultan. And the sultan's just amused, like, he comes along and says, uh, have you thought about Christianity.
4: <laughs> I mean, yes, you, know. so you you know you've noted that he's a quite a poor preacher. He doesn't, and he doesn't offers, convert doesn't convert.
2: He <laughs> offers to you know walk on hot coals to prove, you know, this, that, and the other. And the Sultan sort of sends him sends him back with a smile on his face, I think. But there there is this great moment because the letters back from Damietta are all sort of full of these asides going, you know, it's a real nightmare having France of Assisi around because all the young lads on crusade now they want to go off and join the franciscans they think he's kind of cool and hip and the the best thing since you know sliced bread um and this contrasts brilliantly with the status of the master of the templars who at damietta well if we we read the rule of the templars you know what the, the master is allowed as part of his office of being master it is you know Numerous horses, about a sort of enormous bevy of assistants, uh, a strong box to keep the valuables in, you know. And so even though each Templar was still, in theory, sworn to vows that looked very much like those, sworn, you know, the, the, the way of life that was adopted by Francis of Assisi, barefoot, sackcloth uh, and all, actually, when you step back and look at the Templars at this point, they're an incredibly wealthy, highly sophisticated Paramilitary with a sideline and financial services. I mean, you couldn't get f- much further from the image which was summed up in the in the seal of the Templar Master, which was two brothers sitting on a single horse.
4: Mm. And so moving on through the, a little bit, because we're trying to cover two centuries here, um, which obviously you go into a much more detail in your book. Chivas so never we- got
2: to two centuries, did they?
4: No, no, they didn't. But it's okay. I'm happy to move outside the tuners occasionally. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we've got um, the Sixth Crusade, um, and uh, this is um, twelve twenty-eight. We're up to, um, and we've got. We br- briefly um, there's a deal between Frederick the Second from the Holy the Holy Roman Emperor um, and um, the. And Al-Kamil. The, Al-Kamil who's the leader of the Akbids at this time is that right? It, it, he's sort
2: yeah, of Saladin's, Saladin's, one of Saladin's successors. One of his
4: successors. Is. So Al-Kamil gives Jerusalem back to the Christians 12, 20, 1229 for a while. <laughs> um, and then it's and then it's lost again. I'm summarizing briefly. You yeah. want to come in here?
2: No, I think I think this is a this is a very interesting moment and this is um a moment of great pragmatism during the crusades when Frederick Hohenstaufen the the Holy Roman Emperor uh, who'd been excommunicated four times... That's uh, impressive. <laughs> he even Henry VIII didn't get that. No. Um, turns up as the sort of leader of the, the Crusades, despite being, and, but also to claim the Kingdom of Jerusalem on, on the part of his son. Um, now, Frederick's sort of heart, in a way, lay in Sicily. And anyone who knows about the history of Sicily knows that there's a, this is a, this is the kind of point at which islamic culture greek latin christian all kind of blend together and frederick kind of embodied um, that kind of mishmash of cultures and was was what we would now call extremely open-minded culturally so manages to cut a deal for jerusalem realizes very swiftly we're not going to go and conquer back jerusalem so managed to cut a deal with the sultan al kamil that says okay look we're not going to take jerusalem back but can we part-occupy it and have access to our pilgrims, and they do a deal. And this, you you think, would all be grand. But unfortunately, Frederick falls out quite uh, dramatically um, with the Templars while he's in the Holy Land and enters what amounts to a running war with the Templars whilst doing a deal with the Muslim Sultan. And it it doesn't look great, and the, the chroniclers of the Holy Land give him absolute pelters for it. I mean, he's literally pelted out of the Holy Land, decides to leave uh, shortly after cutting the deal with Al-Kamil and they're throwing kind of tripe at him down at the docks as he's, as he's getting... The yes, it's together. a
4: lovely line. I'm going to try and find it while she keeps saying that.
2: Um, and I think this is, in one sense, a moment that we would now applaud. You know, it's diplomacy triumphing over um, militancy and Jerusalem is for a short period, for about 15 years the Christians gain access to it. It is you know, there's there's a sort of rapprochement between the Ibids and the um and the Christians of the Holy Land. But it, it really doesn't um it doesn't last because twelve forties, twelve fifties, twelve sixties we have the rise of the Mamluks and um and things get a little more dogmatic.
4: Yes. So there's this wonderful line where you say Um, that Frederick II had come to the Holy Land with kisses raining upon his knees, departed it with offal hanging from his shoulders. It was a miserable way to go. And it's that sort of wonderful picture that really takes you into the heart of things. Uh, Talking of illustrative moments, one I particularly enjoyed was when we get to um, Louis IX, Mm -hmm. um, who built... You tell us Saint chapelle and Aigumort you know I didn't know that either um his deathbed recovery. you open a chapter looking at his deathbed recovery in twelve forty four this astonishing moment, which gives him the inspiration to go off and have another go um in in damietta. Tell us about that
2: well louis the i mean Louis the ninth I think Voltaire considers him you know. He's not an enormous fan of the monarchy, but you know, he was considered the the kind of the great man in the history of the French monarchy. You know, cultured, saintly, um urbane, kind of high-achieving, a crusader. Um and it's you know, he had much written about him in and after his lifetime. There's a lot of propaganda about Louis IX. So you've got to cut, you have to take this slightly with a pinch of salt. But it you know, it said he had, he, had dysent, he suffered from dysentery on and off throughout his life um yes, one, there's a really terrible yes, bit uh, where, yeah you getting to at it, at one okay. point during the crusade doing his crusade to damietta he has to sort of cut a hole in his trousers because his dysentery gets so bad um but he's at one point in his life just shortly before he goes on crusade he's in, the, uh, in in the 1240s he's dying and he's lying on his deathbed and they brought down all the relics they can think of and this is a man who collected a lot of relics you know he built Saint-Chapelle to house his relic collection, which had at its heart the Crown of Thorns. Um, He's lying on his deathbed. Oh, no, it's so terrible. There's two women kind of standing next to him and they're having an argument about whether he's dead or not, which I think is, you know, if you're not dead, is annoying. (laughs)
3: Um,
2: And they start to pull the sheet up and uh, and then finally he suddenly wakes up. And so it's said um, in one sort of somewhat hagiographical account of his life... He asks for a Crusader's cross. And, I mean, this seems to happen quite regularly, or certainly it's a trope of accounts of great leaders during the Crusades, Saladin included, which is to say they have a terrible illness, recover, and then suddenly realise what it is they they haven't done they're supposed to do, which is to become a great sort of bigot and kick the other lot out. (laughs) Um, and Louis IX has it, goes through exactly this process, on his deathbed, not done, dying of dysentery, no, no, he's not, and off he goes down to Damietta, and he, uh, he the Templars help him raise his army, fund his army, fight his campaign down in Damietta. And just like the Fifth Crusade down to Damietta, um, they get to Damietta, take Damietta, but no, they're not satisfied with Damietta. Someone has the bright idea that they should travel up the Nile to Cairo and take that as well. And again, you know, I gave you some advice about what you should do in the... the 12th century earlier. Well, if you find yourself in the 13th century near Damietta and someone says, do you fancy a day trip to Cairo? Again, (laughs) the answer is no, don't do it, because uh, history suggests that when you do that, you end up swamped in the the floods of the Nile and in retreat. And that's exactly what happens to Louis.
4: And, you know, if there's one bone to pick with you, or at least the history, there there aren't that many women in this book, are there?
2: No, there's not. There's not. And I, I sort of really... Uh, felt that all the way through. Um, but what do you do? You run about the Templars, you know?
4: Yes. You, I mean, good on other forms of diversity, but um, but not a, a gender. But we do have one. We've got Margaret, the wife of uh, Louis IX, who is accompanying him on this crusade. And not only that, but giving birth to a couple of children along the way. It seems, it seems to me pretty impressive.
2: It's, it's very impressive. And one of the children um, uh, was... The, the master of the Templars at the time, um, was Reginald Ovisio, stood as godfather to Louis's son, which was specifically mandated against in the Templar rule. So he really oughtn't to have been doing it, but as we all know, rules are there to be broken.
4: So there are lots of um, unpleasant, rule-breaking people in this book. Um, in fact, I'm not quite sure how you kept track of your huge cast of characters, mm. but although... I don't wish to imply that they they're not you know that they're, they're introduced brilliantly and I um I you know I, I, there were moments where King Amric of uh, Jerusalem was a struggle. it was a, a struggler you said mm. um and then go on to the, this wonderful description so everybody who's introduced in
2: this book is Large, amazing. pendulous breasts like a woman
4: yes that was amric
2: of jerusalem that's what william of tire said about him he had, he had a sort of stammer he was quite awkward in conversation and uh, although he was very sparing with his diet throughout his life, he had um, blubbery pectorals which hung like a woman's breasts.
4: Exactly that. So we've got these amazing descriptions Dadbot, of people.
3: They call
4: that now. <laughs> <laughs> Where, so as you, as you meet people, you remember certain things about them, um, Amaric, his breasts. But there are pretty unpleasant and horrible people in this book. Who, who do you think is the most terrible of them? Philip IV. The Ah right, okay, okay, yes. I
2: mean, uh, be, you know, so Philip the Fourth, King of France, Philip le Philip the Fair, Philip the really, really, really weird, nasty piece of work.
4: So we're fast forwarding through the end of the 13th century, where we have this great Mamluk surge taking back all sorts of lands, and um, fast forwarding right up to the beginning of the 14th century, 1307, where Philip the Fourth, the Fair, is not so fair to um, the Templars. What happens then?
2: Well, look, we're into the phase of the fall of the Templars. And I think, you know, there's a reason why I've written a book about the Templars and not about the Hospitallers, the Teutonic Knights, the Sword Brothers of Livonia, the the Order of Belchite, whatever. There were lots of military orders in in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. Only one of them was destroyed spectacularly by a vindictive King of France and his poodle Pope. That was the Templars. So just by way of quick backstory... 1270s, 1280s, the Mamluk slave-soldier d- caste dynasty from Egypt to conquer Syria kick the Crusaders out of the Holy Land. They end up in Cyprus. Last stand, 1291, at Acre, Siege of Acre. Templars are, the, you know, the Templar fortress on the docks of Acre is the last line of defence, but he, eventually that falls. It's evacuated. Everyone ends up in Cyprus. That's 1291. The next 15 years see a sort of rolling hostility build towards the military orders in general and the Templars in particular. The Templars led shortly after Fulvacca by Jacques de Molay, James de Molay, the, as it turns out, last master of the Templars. In 1306, James de Molay is is summoned um, back to Europe by the Pope Clement V. Clement V, a Gascon... So a sort of Frenchman, but also a sort of Englishman, you know, Gascony then being ruled by England, he's summoned back uh, to ostensibly to give the Pope some advice, some advice on what should be done to reclaim the Holy Land, what kind of crusade needs to be launched, but also to defend the charge that's been building from several quarters that the Templars and the Hospitallers should be rolled together in a single military order, a sort of super order, that will be led by a, uh, a warrior king. And this idea is something that uh, Philip IV, then King of France, grandson of Louis IX, latches onto. But as it as it seems, Philip IV, you know, a cold, conniving. Uh, ultra-pious, um, somewhat, I mean, this is this is bad history to diagnose, but, you know, a shorthand, somewhat psychopathic um, king of France, uh, latches onto the idea of destroying the Templars for a number of reasons. Now, it's usually said oh, he owed the Templars a bunch of money. Not quite so. The Templars had been running treasury functions for the kings of France for about 100 years. So the kings of France were always in debt to the Templars, but it was, it was, a, it was a sort of free-flowing debt, a bit like one of those bank accounts where you can dip in and out your mortgage, if, if you want a good analogy. Um, so Philip was also, he was broke. I mean, there was no doubt he was broke. He'd, he'd wasted a lot of money. The French crown had wasted a lot of money fighting uh, on the southern borders against Aragon. And they'd been continually debasing the coinage, you know, ruinous economic policies. Combine that with a lack of silver in Europe in general, they couldn't make any more coins. So Philip had a big financial problem. He was also engaged in a long-running row with the papacy and he'd uh, had such a row with Pope Boniface VIII, who died in 1303, um, that he'd sent one of his ministers down to the Pope's residence at Aignani and the the minister, William of of Nogare, had slapped the Pope, so it was said, in the face, which you're not supposed to do to the Pope, and the pope had died sort of ravingly mad. Philip uh, refused to drop it. From a slap. Uh, he slapped him. Someone, you know, yeah, after, after besieging right. the house, Boniface died not long after. It used to be said that he died. He went mad and chewed his own hands off. Um, but that's not true. They dug him up and his hands were still. On. Philip IV was refusing to let this drop. He wanted to be, you know, Rex Christianismus, the most Christian king, and that put him at odds with the papacy and he wanted Boniface dug up and put on trial for sodomy and heresy and all sorts. 1306, in a sort of dual attempt, so the round with the papacy had basically been about money, and he turned it into a rabbi who was the most Christian king. 1306, he decided to swipe all the money from all the Jews in France by kicking 100,000 Jews out of his kingdom, take their money, also position himself as a sort of the most pious king in Europe. 1307, he decides to do the same thing to the Templars. The Templars are... are have copped a lot of flack for losing losing the kingdom of Jerusalem. They also, as he knows very well, have a lot of wealth. And so a plan is slowly put into motion while the last master of the Templars is in France in 1306-7 to arrest all the Templars in France, put them on trial for a range of charges, uh, all of which will centre on accusations that they've broken their vows effectively, that they're corrupt that they're blasphemers that they're sodomites that they're heretics so he will be positioning himself philip will be positioning himself as the sort of as a kind of cleaner upper of the church he will also then be able to swipe all the templars money and on friday the 13th of october 1307 that plan swings into action at dawn royal officials all over france who had been issued their instructions a month previously turn up at all the templar houses in france most of which are unguarded because France is not a crusading war zone. Arrest all the Templars, take them off, imprison them, torture them, start putting them on trial, accused of an enormous range of uh, outrageous crimes.
4: Yes, it does seem that Philip IV has something of an obsession with sodomy, particularly because it does keep coming up in these in these accusations. In fact, the list of things that these that the Templars are accused of, um, as you say, m- map so exactly. Um, between various interrogations. It's it's almost as if they're being given a list and being required to say yes. And so these things are um, their, what, heretical ritual, um, um, homosexual practices, um, various abominations, in inverted commas, that they name. And there's particular fascination with a kind of secret ritual at the beginning of their ceremonies, isn't there?
2: It's fake news. It's fake news. It's like they it's quite clever it is quite clever so what the templars are accused of is stuff that they've done which is made to sound terrible so they well in the main anyway the the charge one of the central charges is connected with the templar induction ceremony by which new brothers were admitted to the order. So at such a ceremony, a Templar would be sort of made, you know, made to wait outside chapter while all the other well, a new, you know, a new recruit would be made to wait outside chapter while all the other templars had a meeting. He'd then be invited in, he'd be quizzed, he'd be told what a nightmare it was being a Templar, was he sure he wanted to do it? Is he married, you know, asked a bunch of questions. Once he'd made it through all these, he would be admitted to the order and given the kiss of peace. Okay. In Sort of normal run of feudal relations in the early 14th century. A kiss of peace between two men was nothing really to get too worked up about. It happened all the time. Much as sort of an air kiss at a fashion show does not imply anything more than, you know, a greeting today. Now, the accusations against the Templars took that and ran with it. And they said, you know, these guys have been kissing each other. Oh, my God, they've actually been kissing each other. They've been kissing each other on the chest, on the lips, on the penis, on various other parts of the body. Um... The Templars were also accused of uh, forcing each other to deny Christ. There's a little bit of, of debate about whether perhaps that was a sort of test that was applied in some areas to some Templars, but it's not entirely certain. They were being accused of having worshipped kind of false idols, which sound... Pretty much like the, it's it's taking reliquaries which would have been in some Templar houses and saying you guys are worshipping the haven't you You're worshipping the Master, d- d- making a false distinction between veneration and worship. So they're accused of a bunch of, of stuff that's, that's massively, massively, massively trumped up, um, tortured, in large part into admitting that this is what they've been they've been doing, and then paraded around in public at sort of a public inquiry, where the most susceptible or high profile temples are forced to admit that they've been doing this stuff in public
4: and it's into I mean once having worked on um, things to do with witchcraft um, trials in the sixteenth and seventeenth century you know that it, it, where um confessions um, happen is where inquisitorial justice is in play where there's torture happening um and what it does to a person in terms of it's not just even just about making the pain stop it's about it breaks down your sense of what you've done and what you haven't done mm. so behalf so people being accused of these things start to believe or maybe i did do them because Mm. you know they'll they'll just be led and they want and they start i don't know there's anyway there's all sorts of um interesting literature about it but wanting to please your captor Mm. and wanting to say the thing he wants you to say and all this sort of stuff so it makes sense that these templars who are imprisoned and cold and um isolated and hungry and and this goes on for years in some cases are are saying what for the most part they're being told to say
2: yeah there's, there's there's testimony from one templar who says uh, in France, who says that he'd rather have been, you know, burned to death or boiled to death and put back in the little pit in which he was kept, uh, which he, he couldn't stand up properly or sit down properly, and, and you know, there was others have had their their arms forced behind their backs so tightly the bloods run from under their fingernails. You know, Jacques de Molay, James de Molay appears actually to have gone mad um, quite early on, or you know, lost his 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 grip very early on in his, um, his incarceration, which ended up lasting um, from 1307 through till 1314, when he was eventually burned at the stake. And um, you're absolutely right. You know, there's, There is a, an element of... You can clearly see in the trial testimony where torture has been applied, just in the answers that have been given, even in the ways they are recorded. It's not hard to read against this evidence and see admissions were being forced on the Templars with the specific target of discrediting the order to the point where it was no longer viable for the Pope who was in some ways involved in this whole whole process, certainly in in terms of rolling it out in other countries, where it's no longer viable for the Pope to keep the Templars going.
4: Yes, well, that's really interesting because it it all makes sense. You've got um, Philip in France carrying out this campaign against them, but it is uh, amazing that it does spread to these other countries and that Clement V, the Pope at the time, who in 1307 is in support of the Templars, within five years is damning them. How does that come about?
2: Um, Clement V owed his position as Pope to Philip IV, ultimately, and he knew it. Never went to Rome, um, held his papal court in Poitiers and subsequently uh, in Avignon. Troubles all his adult life with uh, quite serious ill health, Uh, just not a particularly strong character, and with the knowledge that the last Pope who'd crossed Philip IV of France, Boniface VIII, had being slapped to death, and uh, they were still talking about digging him up and putting him on trial after after he was putting his corpse on trial. So it has got a lot of pressure on Clement V. Clement V, I think, realised that this was all hocus-pocus, but was being browbeaten by Philip IV. Tried to, and successfully did stall Philip IV, because Philip wanted a a lightning-quick rolling up of the Templars in the same way that in 1306 did a lightning-quick expulsion of the Jews. You didn't get it because Clement V intervened to take control, in a sense, of the whole process of investigating the Templars and to roll it out across every other territory. Nightmare for Philip because now it's it's the, the process was out of his control and ended up taking four and a half years, four years to, from the, the point of the arrest to the point where the, the Pope at the Council of Vienne in early 1312 wound up the order of the Temple. Um... What we see in most territories when the when papal orders go out to start investigating the Templars outside France is most people going. I mean, there's non, there's disbelief. Even in Cyprus, where they there was some ambivalence because of local politics towards the Templars, people turned up at the Templar at the trial of the Templars to give almost blanket evidence in favour of the Templars, and they quoted a famous saying on Cyprus, which was. Um, I will defend you in the manner of the Templars, whether you were right or whether you were wrong. There was a a sense that whatever the Templars had or hadn't done in the Holy Land, their probity was the one thing that really wasn't in question. But that was, you know, where Saladin had failed to destroy the Templars by attacking the individuals, Philip IV succeeded by attacking their values. And by the charges against them were... Clearly designed to show that they'd been failing to uphold their vows, their chastity, their poverty, their obedience, or that those vows were, were corrupting the order. And it was devastatingly successful because, you know, within five years of, the, of these charges being levelled, the Templars were gone. Gone.
4: And that's after 200 years? Hundred like yeah. and ninety, or and the 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 order is suppressed and and disappears.
2: There's a bit. I mean, there there are sort of uh, there are little ripples of survival in Portugal, where the Templars had been heavily involved in the Reconquista, claiming lands back from, you know, Muslim r- rulers on the Iberian Peninsula. No one wanted to roll the Templars up, and uh, you know, the thirteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, the Order of Christ was set up, in which Templar former Portuguese Templars were kind of given new uniforms, new job titles and allowed to carry on uh, their business. So there was an element of temple, Templar survival. We have accounts of individual Templars kind of running away, d- d- you know, uh, abandoning ship. Um, there's a great account of from the 1320s, I think, of, of two elderly Templars wandering around Palestine, uh, seemingly not knowing that the order's been wound up at all. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so the, the big... One of the reasons I think that there's so much attention has been lavished on the Templars over the years, particularly with regard to the, what I call the hocus-pocus, is that people can't believe that this could have happened. They can't believe that an organisation this rich, powerful, large and widespread could have been rolled up and disappeared in the day, to, to, to which I've started responding, well, where's Lehman Brothers or Bear yeah. Stearns? In our lifetime, 2008, gone, right?
1: Just yeah. gone. yeah.
2: And that's shocking, and we know that the people who worked for those companies are mostly still alive, but it does happen, and it can happen, and it's not a matter of total disbelief that you have to create wild explanations for them.
4: Yes, and the fate of many of the Templars wasn't quite so pleasant in that many of them were uh, burned uh, alive. Yeah, yeah look, less
2: than 100. Actually, I mean, you know, this, is, this is cold comfort. Less than 100 Templars were burned. But the the damage psychologically that must have been done to the tempers who were in prison for many, many years in very harsh conditions, just the shock of, you know, an organisation that you devoted your life to just being rolled up and...
4: And the shame. Yeah. And the, and the shame, shame. that the, 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 because of the the, the the attack on their values. Yeah. Um, and, and it's amazing. All this is happening before Dante is writing um, and you, that he puts Clement V in hell. Um, he does. Being roasted upside down seems to to say much about what happens to them.
2: It's for, for simony, though, I think. Weirdly, not for what he did to the temple. Oh, OK. okay. Uh, but you, you're right. You know, This is a very fertile period of medieval literature that is just about to dawn Boccaccio and Dante and mm. so on. Uh, and, and this is the world from which all that literature is born.
4: And let's just think quickly about legacy then, um, uh, and particularly uh, the fact that you have... Paid off, as it were, the 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 mythology by being involved with (laughs) with Nightfall. So this is a new series that's coming out, and you've been a historical consultant. Tell us about doing that. Uh,
2: So just at the time I started writing the book, I read in like Variety or the Hollywood Reporter or something that Jeremy Renner, the actor, his production company, The Combine, had got a green light from the History Channel, A&E Networks, A&E Studios, for a Templar drama, and I was super annoyed. So I was like, now, that, now I can't sell the film rights to my book, right? I can't write my own Templars drama. So I, I got in touch with them and I said, look, I'm writing a book about the Templars. I'm here as a friend of the court if you want to talk about it because I want to talk about it. And uh, and so we just, you know, I got to know the guys, my, the, the creators and, the, show, and the, the Don Minghella, who's the showrunner. and And then they asked me to... I started reading the scripts and just giving them historical notes because the, the creators were very keen that although the, what they were doing was playing with the mythology, firstly, of the Templars, secondly, of the Holy Grail and the King Arthur legends and kind of blending those together, um, but they also wanted to hit historical beats, which was, by the way, in, you know, in, the, in 1200, 1210, the Templars were appearing in the King Arthur stories. They were there. They were being, fant- you know, turned into fantasy. Uh,
4: even whilst they were alive. Even while they
2: were alive. Yeah. You know, literally legends in their own lifetime. And so... That was at the heart of when I read the pilot script. And I thought, you know, actually, this is kind of interesting to me because I had pushed away all of this mythology in writing the book. And I thought, well, here's, A, a way to sort of scratch that itch and think a bit more about the mythology without having to put it into my book. And also I was just fascinated by the process of how a kind of, I don't know, the budget must be like $40 million, something like that, how a thing like that gets made. And I ended up consulting to it and working with the guys for about a year from pre-production through to the end of production and still working with them now. Um, and from start to finish. So, you know, from one script, two guys, to about a 1,000 people working on the biggest backlot set in Europe, built out in Prague, to the, it premiered in Cannes a few months ago. You know, I've seen through the process of building a big historical drama and it's, yeah, you know, I'm fascinated by
4: it. Mm. And you've got your own series on this coming up yeah,
2: as well? Well... Uh, in the U.S., the his, history um, are serializing the book. It comes out September nineteenth in the U.S. and they've um, we're serializing with them, and I've, they've commissioned me to make seven short films about the Templars, which I've written, and we're now editing. So that'll be out in mid September.
4: Okay, great. So, so that's f- for U.S. viewers. For those, I think, I think
2: you'll be able to see the we'll be able to see the films over here, and I'll uh, I'll put them on my Facebook page and, and all that sort of stuff.
4: And you've got an event coming up on the 21st of October with with me with History Masterclass to talk about the Templars as well, for those who'd like to come.
2: If you want to know more about the Templars, I mean, yeah, I think, well, you've been running Masterclass for about a year, two You're years? Just
4: coming up for a year now, yeah.
2: yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to do it. And I think... I'll be talking about, God knows what I'm going to talk about. You know, once you start me going, I just, will be learning. I think it's, it's the Templars, but I, I'm also, as you know, very interested in story building and historical story building. So I think there'll be a lot of that involved as well.
4: Yes, so that's um, uh, thehistorymasterclass.com if you want to find out more about that. But this has been a really fascinating conversation from my point of view, at least. And um, and the book is wonderful. If you, you, you know, do pick this up, it's it's completely um compelling and sort of rides along and you'll learn all this history but you'll have felt like you've just had a a very entertaining experience along the way which is perfect
2: thank you thank you for your wonderful questions
3: that was dan jones in conversation with susanna lipscomb the templars is out now in the uk published by head of zeus in the us it's due to be published next week by viking And Dan has also written a piece on the Knights Templar in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale in the UK. Also in this month's edition we have pieces on Edward VIII's First World War, Bloody Mary's Protestant Martyrs, the history of Indians in Britain and the Anglo-Saxon Battle of Brunanburh. Look out for our October issue in all good newsagents and our many digital formats. Now Dan Jones is also going to be one of the speakers at both of our History Weekends in York and Winchester this autumn. While his talks have now both sold out, there are still tickets available for a number of others. You can find out more details and purchase tickets at historyweekend.com. And now it's time for this week's History News with our acting digital editor Eleanor Evans.
6: A debate has been reignited over the identity of a Viking skeleton whose remains were discovered in Sweden in the late 19th century. Researchers from Stockholm University believe that they have confirmed the 10th-century skeleton found in the Swedish town of Birka in the 1880s is female. The remains have long been presumed to be male, largely due to a sword, axe, and other status symbols found alongside the body. These artefacts have also led many to believe that the body belonged to a warrior. The Independent reported that DNA testing of the remains has led the researchers to conclude that this is the first discovery of a female, high-ranking Viking warrior, noting the skeleton's thin, slender and gracile bones as a further indication. However, Judith Jesch, an expert on Vikings and Norse history, has written that further justification is needed to confirm the bones as the correct ones for the gravesite before more light can be shed on the skeleton's warrior status. Meanwhile, the government has altered the route of a controversial road tunnel which is planned to bypass the Stonehenge World Heritage Site. A representative from Highways England told the BBC that the main difference to the proposal shed in January 2017 affected the western end of the 1.8-mile tunnel Campaigns to rethink the route prompted an extra 50-metre shift away from the monument in order to avoid affecting the view of the stones at the winter solstice. In a joint statement, Historic England, the National Trust and English Heritage said that the change will ensure the winter solstice alignment quote, will be unspoilt by lights and traffic from the road. While Transport Secretary Chris Grayling has stated the quote, big decision aims to reduce traffic congestion and improve visitor experience, Groups, including the Stonehenge Alliance, are still calling for, quote, a complete rethink amid fears that the tunnel may cause the site to lose its UNESCO World Heritage status. The proposals will likely now be subject to a lengthy planning process, and the BBC reports that the work is expected to start in 2021.
3: OK, so that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Monday when we'll be talking about the Ukrainian famine with Anne Applebaum.
0: Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.